All right, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast for the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Psychology Program. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the Psychology Program and host of Psychology Stuff. And I've got two fabulous guests today. Uh, First, from the Humanistic Studies Department, uh, we have Dr. Derek Jeffries. Derek, hello. Hi, Ryan. Hi. Um, We also, our producer is getting involved today, and I'm super excited about it. Um, So, uh, Kate Farley, who regularly is here, in fact, has been here pretty much for every episode. Every time. Yes. Uh, she, uh, though, typically she, she doesn't have uh, a microphone, so, but today we get to hear from her. So you are an English major and a humanistic studies major from UWGB? Yes, and I graduated in 2013, and now I work in academic tech services. All right. So, um, and today we are to basically, I'm calling this episode the Stanford Prisons Experiment Part 2, because uh, about a month and a half ago, we did an episode uh, where we watched the movie, the, the Hollywood movie, Stanford Prison Experiment, and we talked about it. Um, but we have someone on campus who... Um, I'll, I'm going to let him tell us a little bit about his background, but uh, frankly, as an expert in ethics and, and various things, and uh, it seemed like a great idea to have him come on and talk about uh, this as well. So, can we start out? Can you, so, I've, I'm going to have a confession to make. I've been in my head for a long time talking about you as a philosopher. Is that an accurate description, or are you religious studies, or are you both? I'm actually both. Okay. I do uh, philosophy and religion. I'm actually the only religion professor on campus. Okay. So that is what I was what I was wondering. And so what, tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you get your degree and, and mm-hmm. um, what did you study and what's your dissertation on, things like that? Right. I have all my degrees from the University of Chicago, okay. uh, my undergraduate degree from there. Then I left uh, for a while, did a bunch of different things, and then came back and did my uh, PhD there. My undergraduate degree was in an interdisciplinary humanities uh, program. And uh, my PhD is in uh, religious ethics from the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. Okay. So I'm a straight University of Chicago person. <laughs> All right. What what got you interested in that area in the beginning? Uh, thinking back to undergrad when you decided you wanted to study ethics. Right. Well, in this interdisciplinary program I was in at the University of Chicago, I began to get interested in ethics and violence. And that's really the work I've been doing ever since I was about 21. Uh, and uh, I've been looking at questions related to that since then. I was in the military, and uh, I wrote in college uh, a thesis on uh, the military and pacifism. Uh, So I've been looking at different ways we explore violence and what it does to human beings, really for 30 years, different manifestations. Uh, so what I do now is simply a, a different way of looking at the same question. I'm, I'm one right. of these intellectuals who looks at one question in multiple ways. There are different kinds of intellectuals, and I'm one of those people who keeps looking back at the same question. <laughs> All right. And so uh, making a mental note here, because I'm actually teaching a capstone in the fall on anger and violence, and I'd like you to come. Speak. I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And I've got it on air, right? Proof that he promised. <laughs> um, super. So, and I know one of the things you do, Derek, I know you have done some work out at the prison here in Green Bay. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about the kind of work you do there and how often and how long you've been doing that? Right. Well, this started, uh, I I wrote uh, a book on uh, solitary confinement uh, and published that in 2013. And it started as a desire to get into the prison system to understand, uh, to get my hands dirty in a way. That's something I've always done. I've always wanted to get involved in institutions and see what's going on. And so it started as a part of my interest in 
in the research. Uh, but I so, so I started teaching at the prison about six, seven years ago. And what I do is to give the inmates lectures. I'm a volunteer, and I give them lectures on the kind of things I teach here. Um, I lecture on uh, evil and uh, different kinds of religions, Buddhism. Uh, and so I teach in a program that's uh, devoted to uh, helping the inmates uh, further their education. And I go in and I, as a, as a volunteer, and I, I love it. It's really terrific. How often do you do that? Well, I do it for the prison uh, a couple times uh, a semester, um, and I now do it for the jail. I expanded this for uh, the Brown County Jail, uh, okay. which is near our campus. Uh, I have a program over there, which is once a month. Oh, wow. And uh, I also do a lot of other things over at the prison. Uh, I've been very privileged to have given access. One of the difficulties in our prison system is it's hard to for outsiders to have access to the inside, and I've been given access to the uh, prison system, and so I, um, I worship with inmates in the chapel, and uh, I go and do a lot of different uh, volunteer programs there as well. So mm-hmm. I've kind of become a, a, a fixture over there. It's kind of odd. Uh, people kind of know who I am now. I'm trusted enough to go in, and uh, so I'm very grateful to the uh, people there to, mm-hmm. to allow me to... I spend a lot of time just talking to inmates and spending time with them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's a really positive experience. You know, it's so... And I don't remember where I heard this, but, you know, even uh, I think before you and I had worked together in any capacity, one thing that someone uh, else on campus described you as is someone who really walks the walk you know that the, that you're you you write about this you teach about it here but then when you're when you're not here you're at the prison you're at the jail you're places like that doing that and I think that's really obvious as, as you've described it here um, and I think that's great I think um, one of the questions I'm, I'm I have for you though is um, I imagine doing something like that as often as you do has been an incredible learning experience for you as well. What are some of the big things you you think you've learned uh, in doing that? Yeah, it has. I mean, working in the prison system can be transformative. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's not. For some people, it's embittering. But for me, it's been entirely transformative. I mean, first of all, you just understand the broken, completely broken character of our prison system. It's completely uh, uh, broken, and it's a terrible, and Wisconsin has got a lot of problems that I didn't anticipate. This, this state has very rather unique problems that I was quite surprised to uh, learn about. So, I mean, that's the first thing that one understands in just talking to people about their experiences. Um, and And I think more importantly, one just um, learns about the struggles that people have uh, and that their their struggle to change or not to change. Some people don't want to change. Some people do want to change. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's a very powerful experience to see how difficult it is to change and how uh, to, to apply that to uh, life outside of the prison. And I think the last thing I would say is the difference between inside and outside. This sounds odd, but it's not as wide as people think. I mean, there are certain things that people want to say about inmates. People want to say, for example, that, that inmates are liars. And yes, there are a lot of liars in the prison system, but I've also found a lot of people who lie outside <laughs> the prison <laughs> right. system. And, right. and so I found that the inside and the outside, it gets complicated. That uh, So there are people... So, um, yeah, in, m- in many ways, this has been just, just the experience of, of being face-to-face with people and watching their uh, struggles and the desire to change and how difficult it is for them um, has been very powerful for me. Okay. 
Let it be known we've been nodding for a good three minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yes. well, I appreciate we it. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I wanted to, I do want to talk about the, the, the Zimbardo stuff, but honestly, I'm pretty fascinated by this right now. Please so do. If, if we can yeah. talk about this, this sounds great. Um, I want to, I have my own sense of how the prison system is broken, and I imagine it's similar to what, what your what, what your sense of things too, but although I don't have the same kind of access or exposure you do. But for our listeners who may not be aware of it, kind of describe what are, what are some of these things that you, when you say it's broken and Wisconsin has some unique issues, what are some of those? Right. Well, first of all, the, the sheer number of people that we have incarcerated in this country, uh, it just dwarfs any other uh, country in the industrialized world. Uh, I often give the example, I was in Chile, I visited a prison in Chile a couple of years ago, and I was speaking to a, a dean down there who, you know, was so sure that the Chileans have such a worse prison system than we do and incarcerate so many more prisoners than we do. And his, uh, the numbers don't even come close. We incarcerate incredible numbers of people now. And the only countries that really come close are probably North Korea and Russia and China. I mean, mm-hmm. we're just far... Um, more and and the other thing is the length of the sentences. I mean, they're just extraordinarily long. There's nobody that uh, does the kind of long sentences that we do. Life without the possibility of parole. Um, life sentences. There are about eight hundred thousand people who are serving life sentences in this country, um, and so that's part of the, the. I mean, these incredibly long sentences. It used to be in this country that if for murder, if you did not get the death penalty, you would get 25 years to life, and you might get out in 30, 40 years. Um, you can get 80 years for something far less than murder. I, uh, there are many men over at the Green Bay Correctional Institution who are serving incredibly long sentences for things that were not capital crimes, armed robbery, et cetera. And the other thing is how we treat our young people. I mean, there's a big scandal right go- going on right now about our potential scandal going on about our uh, youth facility at Lincoln Hills here, the way we treat our uh, our juveniles. Um, and if you read the Milwaukee uh, pre- press about this, um, we uh, treat them absolutely terribly. We put young people in horrible institutions where they're sexually assaulted. We put young people in adult institutions where they're assaulted. Our prison, we have put for years, um, young people in with adults, 16, 17-year-olds, mm-hmm. and nobody treats the juveniles like this in, in, in industrialized countries. I mean, yes, in other parts of the world they do, but, um, and finally, the racial uh, discrimination. I mean, Wisconsin incarcerates a higher percentage of African-Americans than any uh, state in the Union, and this was a surprise to me when I came here. Uh, I knew that Milwaukee was one of the most segregated cities in the nation. But this is a deep problem in Wisconsin uh, prison system. Sixty um, percent African American our, our prison system is, and this just causes a great deal of uh, strain, you know, a great deal of tension, and it's profoundly unjust, in my view. Um, so these are just some of the um, uh, ills of our current pr- uh, prison system. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I, I have uh, some experience from when I was an undergrad working in the juvenile justice system in the Twin Cities and, you know, saw at the time, and this is a good 15, almost uh, almost 20 years ago, and saw at the time, um, one of the things I, I noticed is that I worked there long enough to watch kids enter the system and then 
be in it for a few right. years in various capacities through foster care. And I watched as things just sort of, it was a, a downward cycle that, that just simply wasn't ever broken. You know, right. that it just, it went from, uh, you know, bad to, you know, a bad situation to just a, what ultimately was a sort of a, a, ended up being kind of life sentences, you know? And so it was really, really disheartening and heartbreaking. And so, right. Um, so I want to I want to back up for a little bit. So years ago, you and I did a panel discussion actually for another member of your department, uh, Rebecca Meacham, um, on kind of ethics. Uh, I think it was specifically it was around the book. Remind mm-hmm. me the name of the book: uh, Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. That's correct. So, yeah, mm-hmm. and um, a fascinating talk, a really really interesting talk. At the time, I was the chair of the institutional review board here, and we were just kind of talking ethics uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and we talked a little bit about. Zimbardo at the time as being one of the examples I think you brought up of um, well actually probably both of us of um, of unethical research that had happened over time um, I guess I want to start out talking about I know you listened to our Zimbardo episode about a, about from about a month ago I'm curious did you have any thoughts on that or anything kind of come up based on that or do you where do you want to start when it comes to talking about Zimbardo and and the Stanford Prison Study. Well, I did enjoy the, the uh, talk, so I want to say that, first of all. Good. I do appreciate you. This kind of inquiry is really, and especially the interdisciplinary character of this, I really like. Uh, Good. I, I invited my colleague to come. He's a creative writer. I thought that was really good right. so I really think it's useful um, I do have a slightly different view than uh, I think may have come across um, sometimes people say when they look back at Zimbardo and some other uh, experimenters that Milgram today, is probably Milgram the, other. Is the right. other one that mm-hmm. uh, today we have different standards and at the time uh, you know people didn't have the same kind of standards ethical standards that we have today um, and I don't view it that way. Um, I think in 1947, uh, the Allies hanged Nazi doctors, and we codified the Nuremberg Code, which okay. was very specific about uh, informed consent. And uh, I've spent a lot of time studying the history of unethical uh, medical experiments and the history of unethical psychological experiments in our prison system and among uh, on orphans and on the mentally uh, cognitively disabled, and uh, the problem is, I think, that a lot of um, people in the United States said, well, those are the Nazis, it doesn't right. really apply right. to us, right. and, uh, and I see Zimbardo as part of a pattern, a post-war pattern, beginning after the war and into the 70s when this stuff was finally exposed, really in the 60s it started being exposed by a guy named Harry Beecher, who uh, uh, exposed a lot of this unethical experimentation. Um, so I think it was unethical at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, it violated informed consent. Uh, and this is not just the Nuremberg Code. There's a lot of other documentation, international documentation. And uh, so I don't see it as there was a eth- different ethical standard at the time. Mm-hmm. I think it mm-hmm. was unethical at the time. Right. And that's one of the things that I am particularly fascinated by. So, you know, this is there's no question this was pre-Belmont report, right? right? And so pre-R, this is one of the things we talked about in the right. podcast, that there was, we didn't have the IRB procedure that we right. have now. Zimbardo claims, I thought this was interesting, this is sort of a new, uh, something new for me at least. He claims that it went through some sort of research review process at Stanford. I had never heard that before. Um, but I'm curious about the question you brought up, or, or, or the, the, the thing you brought up about, so why, why doesn't the Nuremberg Code 
why didn't that come here? And you said it's, well, that's for Nazis. It doesn't apply to us. Why didn't, why didn't we recognize that we could, we could engage in eth- unethical research, too, that we needed a code? Like, why didn't we take that? Yeah, well, I think people did as often uh, recognize that. Philip Zimbardo, okay. if you look on his website, had an informed consent document. Okay. And if you examine that very closely, it doesn't come anywhere near what the Nuremberg Code requires. Interesting. For example, the students were arrested by the Stanford police, mm-hmm. Palo Alto police, mm-hmm. which I can't imagine the university, why a university would go along with a professor using the police department to arrest these students. They were arrested at their homes mm-hmm. and by the police and not really told what was going on, and they were brought to the uh, experimentation site and blindfolded. Right. Um, now, this is not in the document. They weren't told anything about what mm-hmm. was going to happen. If you look at the informed consent document, it's extremely vague. Mm-hmm. And this is often what you get in post-war research. You see this in the famous, infamous Will- Willowbrook experimentations in New York City, a kind of nod to informed consent. Because Describe that study for people, too. Uh, the yeah. Willowbrook experiment was on Staten Island in New York City, the hepatitis right. experimentation, where um, there was a, a, a doctor. It actually yielded science. This is more complex, perhaps, than uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment because it yielded some knowledge about hepatitis. But Willowbrook was a horrible institution um, on Staten Island with about 5,000 cognitively disabled people living in their own feces. Um, it was just absolutely horrible people. About 80% of those people uh, uh, were, had hepatitis. Mm-hmm. So this uh, researcher, Saul Krugman, said, well, it's okay if we expose these people anyway to hepatitis. And so they fed children uh, um, milk with feces in it and uh, exposed them deliberately to hepatitis. And they gave a, an informed consent document to parents that was very vague, and these were parents who were desperate to have their kids. At this time, we didn't have the same approach we have to disability, and people were desperate to get their children into institutions, and the place was overcrowded. Uh, there's a well-known uh, video you can see of Geraldo Rivera, who's now on Fox News when he was young, and he exposed this. It's really very striking. You just go into YouTube and look up Geraldo Rivera, Willowbrook, it's a very powerful. I, I teach this case. And uh, you have the same thing you have with Philip Zimbardo here. You have a, a vague kind of consent document that's deliberately doesn't really do. Nuremberg is very clear about this. You must give the person a lot of detailed information about what the experiment is going to entail and what kind of risks so they can make up their own mind. And uh, a lot of people didn't do that. A lot of people just dispense with informed consent altogether mm-hmm. in the prison system. It, uh, our inmates were repeatedly experimented on host of and uh, experiments done on people and but when there was a recognition of Nuremberg it was kind of a, a vague recognition I'm gonna protect right. myself legally right okay. questions comments Kate I want to make sure I'm just sad now <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that <laughs> no it it's is okay. and you know obviously we've you know when you think about as I oftentimes think about sort of three big studies that brought um, kind of uh, a lack of uh, ethics to light that led to Belmont, I guess, the Belmont report. I think of, um, I think of Milgram, Zimbardo, and then ultimately the the, the Tuskegee uh, syphilis studies, um, which we found out recently continued on in other countries well after this. And so it's, it's naive to suggest that 
well, we just didn't think we were capable of this. We obviously knew we were capable of this. We continued to do these these horrible things, um, and we continued to do them well after well after Belmont. Um, I wonder. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I wonder sometimes why, if it was just sort of post World War II pride in America, this sort of like exceptionalism that that we we kind of embraced that made us think that, or that made the general population think we weren't capable of doing something as atrocious, or if we were sort of if we were being naive, or if we were actually being sort of misled by. Um, by people uh, into into believing that. I don't know. Uh, if I could just make a Please. couple of comments about yeah. that, I would identify a couple of things. One, the post-war, fasc- post-war fascination with science. I mean, and this is brought out. I have, I have criticisms of Milgram, but it is mm-hmm. brought out in the Milgram experiment. The a person wears a white coat, and, and the science experiment mm-hmm. must go on, is what the gentleman says. And there's an uncritical uh, fascination with what if science says something or if this is in for scientific progress. The other context is the Cold War. Um, and this is, sounds very conspiratorial, but it's well documented. The Central Intelligence Agency funded a massive a series of experimentations called the MKUltra program. This was all discovered in the 1970s. Uh, massive funding in universities. A lot of people didn't know they were getting funding from the um, CIA, but people received to do all kinds of experiments, medical and psychological and nuclear experiments on people. Mm-hmm. Looking as a whole, uh, this is this part of the story is told by a gentleman in in Madison, um, Alfred McCoy, who came up here about ten years ago. I wrote a book about torture, and so this is in the context of torture as well. And so I think that's part of that is the Cold War context. And the last thing I would say is that a lot of these experiments are done on weak and vulnerable populations, and I think this is a perennial temptation. If you look at a host of these experiments, they're done on prison inmates, they're done on on people, orphans who don't have advocates, they're done on people with cognitive disabilities. And so uh, they have no advocates. These people have a, a devaluation that so we might as well do them on them. So uh, I think those are some of the things. And I think that the American exceptionalism you identify as, uh, as an additional mm-hmm. element. We just don't think these things happen in our country. Right. I think a lot of them happen. Until we start paying attention. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, or, yep. Yeah. 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 Um, what, um, it's it's interesting to me because we've talked both about Milgram and uh, about Zimbardo here, and um, and I allegedly at some point Milgram uh, said to Zimbardo something along the lines of "Thanks for taking the heat off me" because both these studies essentially happened at the same time. And um, the interesting thing for me is, on top of everything else, and I'm I'm relatively outspoken in my frustration with. Zimbardo um, in our program. But part of what bothers me, I admit, is that I actually think it was a crappy study. Um, I, I don't think that this one is anything we would be talking about if it weren't unethical, um, that this was not a well-designed study. I, you know, we, we have no, I don't know what the dependent variable is, right? Other than it's a, it's funny because there's a point in yeah. the movie when someone in the film, when someone comes up and says, what's your independent variable? And, and there's a piece of me that likes science seeping into movies that way and at least they're talking about that but the question that needs to be asked is what is your dependent variable other than just your perception of what happened um and so you know and i don't i think that's what i find that bugs me so much about the zimbardo study is i i feel like the only reason we're talking about it is because of the lack of ethics and that otherwise it's just a, a study that isn't that interesting um 
Yeah, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I'm, this is where I'd have to leave most, you know, this is a lot of this to you and your colleagues to evaluate, mm -hmm. but my sense as an outsider is that there's a lot of things that tainted this as a mm -hmm. scientific experiment, his excessive involvement in this. Uh, fact that I know it was reproduced by the BBC later, but the, the difficulty in reproducing right. this. Um, right. There's just a lot of things that um, uh, made this a very poor mm -hmm. study. I did see the film, and I did like that moment, mm -hmm. because uh, and he just dismissed a lot of this. Mm -hmm. uh, so I thought it was a very poor study. And at the time, uh, Erich Fromm, who's, uh, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, remember him, he wrote a very critical piece of him uh, on uh, Zimbardo, and he said, uh, what relevance does this have to prisons? He wanted to make a very quick um, uh, you know, conclusions about prison life, and did he do any cross did any mm -hmm. studies of prisons? Did he did he have any contact with what was going on in prisons? Did he study any historical mm -hmm. con studies of concentration camps? Uh, none of that. It's not really relevant right. to any of it. Later on, he's written this book, Lucifer Effect, right. where he tries to make the argument that this relates to Abu Ghraib. Mm -hmm. And I've studied the Abu Ghraib case, and I think his argument is completely fallacious. I think there's so many things that do not uh, that make it not uh, an argument related <laughs> to the kind of social psychological. He wants to make the case that, of course, the situation. Of course, you know more right. about this than I would. That the situation defines right. you know, the case for the person, and, and it's a terrible uh, uh, argument about Abu Ghraib. I know a lot about the details of that case, and mm. um, doesn't work at all. Mm. And so. Um, I, you know, there's just a lot wrong. So again, I'm, I have to defer to people in psychology right. about this, but uh, as an outsider, it does seem right. that way to me. Well, I suspect others in psychology would, you know, ultimately disagree with me. I mean, my, my objection more than anything is the lack of, of a, a definition for his dependent variable. Just from a purely methodological perspective, it is a, uh, you know, it is just I videotaped them and my perception is that the guards took on the role as guards and the, and the prisoners took on the role of prisoners. And, and I think you know, one, of the, one of the things I will say is I think a misnomer about the Stanford prison experiment is that it was an attempt to generalize two, pop, two prisons. Mm -hmm. I think that what, what he was trying to do or what it, if it tells us anything, what it tells us is that people in particular situations take on particular roles. And that, and there's so there's a moment in the movie that I think is really important when he says, "You're missing the point. the The only thing that separates these two is a coin flip." And I think that that's an important point. Problem is, you don't need to do it. You don't need a, a study like that to learn that. Uh, and that is, and you don't need to do all of the things he did to learn this. Um, and I also, so that's the my my first objection. The second is, I think I think he's dishonest about the long term. Uh, consequences. Uh, he routinely says there were no long-term consequences. They were all, and I, I just, I don't know how that is possible. I think there's no getting around the fact that he has forever changed the lives of the, the human beings he put through that, and that's a long-term consequence in my mind. Um, and, you know, if he means that none of them are now suffering from severe mental illnesses, okay, but that isn't what we mean when we say there's no long-term consequence. Right. In fact, a, a colleague who's a graduate, who's an alum, alumna of, of Stanford University, gave me her magazine uh, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago, and there was that young man who was the main guard mm -hmm. on the front uh, front. And uh, how has his life been changed? Hmm. Uh, well, and, I, and I'm a professor of religion and philosophy who looks at consequences in a larger context right. of spirituality and one's own life and this yep. young man's life. 
And he doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very narrow understanding of what consequences are. Right. Well, and that, you know, if you can think about it too. Wait, I, I know one of the prisoners has now become a, uh, well, at one point had become a prison psychologist. So one of the prisoners in his study went on to, to become a, a prisoner, psych a prison psychologist. Now, you can argue that that was chance or happenstance, or you can say, no, that this situation. How could that not have an effect? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, I do know, are you referring to Craig Haney? Uh, that's probably, uh, the I, I think he was a graduate student, or he's a co-author of the original yeah. study. Is that well, this is one, so one, one of, of the, so there, there's a documentary about this called Quiet Rage. Okay. And there is one of the prisoners in that setting. Okay. Uh, in the original study has, he's interviewed as an adult. And in it, he find out that okay. he has become a prison psychologist, and right. he talks about his experience. He's actually the one who f who, who coins the phrase "quiet rage" right. to describe his experience with things. Right. And I don't remember his name off the top of my head. I know um, the the co-authors, one of yeah. whom has passed away, and the other is um, yeah, Craig Haney. I'm familiar with his work, and I've corresponded okay. with him because oh, really? I've worked on. Uh, uh, solitary confinement, and he's okay. a big uh, psychologist in that field, st okay. studying people. And I do uh, think his work is quite interesting, really? I have to say. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and so his relationship to the Zimbardo study has always puzzled me and what he really thinks about that. But he's a really, he's has done a lot of good work mm -hmm. for prison inmates on uh, on the long-term effects of, of solitary confinement. It's, his work is pretty well respected in that, in that field. Interesting. Uh, so. Okay. Um, so I, I'm curious to know one of the one of the questions I think psychologists deal with is okay so let's we've got these pre Belmont studies Milgram Zimbardo and, and some others and um, where we uh, we can we'll define them as ill-gotten gains, right? The question I think psychologists struggle with, other psychologists struggle with, is what do we do with those results? Do we throw them out? Do we say, no, uh, unethical studies, uh, you, if, if the study's unethical, whatever they found is useless to us? Um, do we say, no, this is still interesting and now we know better? I'm curious to know where you fall on that. Yeah, I think what you have to avoid, first of all, is retroactively justifying the experiment by saying, now we have useful okay. data. I think I, I don't know if I, I, I've heard this often with the Phillips and Bardo people saying, well, yes, it may have been unethical, but now it's, uh, there's a kind of retroactive justification. And mm -hmm. so that's, that's really tricky. The same issue arose after World War II with mm -hmm. uh, Mengele and particularly the Japanese. Mm -hmm. We made a real uh, deal with the devil with the Japanese. We agreed not to um, uh, 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 prosecute them. And they gave us their experimentation. The Japanese did horrible experimentation on human beings during the war. Mm -hmm. And their data turned out to be garbage and worthless, and they got away with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to ascertain you know, to what extent the, da the data is use actually uh, useful. And so I'm, I'm uncomfortable with these larger claims that sort of science is sort of, sort of justification for unethical right. arguments, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, does one then use it? I mean, the knowledge is there. I mean, right. I don't know what else one can do about that uh, at that point. And, mm -hmm. and we have similar debates in intellectual history where you have people who are awful philosophers or have done terrible things but also have yielded certain insights and one can't mm -hmm. let them go. But I think one always has to put those things in context because I think it easily slides into a kind of justification for right. this for now because mm -hmm. people make the same kind of argument, well, I'm pursuing science. Therefore, my action is justified. Mm -hmm. um, so I, 
uh, I'm not unco- entirely uncomfortable saying that you know if we have certain kinds of insights. The hepatitis experiment I, mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, we we actually found it's one of the few. Usually, a lot of these unethical experiments turn out to be garbage. I mean, I can give you a dozen. Uh, of these uh, unethical experiments that people, a lot of people don't know about that turned mm-hmm. out to be complete garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's one, um, uh, Loretta Bender, you probably know about, who uh, developed a very famous test, and she, she did LSD uh, experiments on, on mm-hmm. orphans in New York City in the 60s, and it didn't show anything. She said they were schizophrenic. And so, every cl- so everything that uh, gives us something there's a you know a dozen of them that don't show us anything, so right. so I think you have to be very careful with those kind of arguments. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I want to switch to our game if we can. So Please. as we often do, we ask our guests five questions. You're welcome to pass if we throw anything your way. All right. You can't think of anything, but Kate, do you want to go ahead? Okay. All right. <laughs> do you have a favorite newspaper or blog? Uh, the New York Times is the one I grew up with. I grew up. Uh, I understand all of its complexities, biases, et cetera, mm-hmm. but I'm a New Yorker, and uh, I do read the New York, New York Times all the time, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, I'm perfectly aware of all of its warts, but it still <laughs> is my favorite it's your newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a popular one in your yeah. side of campus, actually. Probably. Uh, I, I, actually, uh, one of your colleagues, David Belker, sends me articles uh, routinely, in fact, yesterday, um, from New York Times, just things that... Which I always appreciate. I find ways to use them in class. Right, <laughs> probably. So, there's lots of good stuff there. All right. Uh, what's your favorite sport? Uh, I do. I do. Um, uh, this may be surprising. I do combat sports. I do uh, martial yeah. arts. Uh, I do. Uh, I used to box. I do uh, uh, jujitsu. Okay. Uh, uh, Brazilian jujitsu. You know, I I did know that about you, but from when we worked on the uh, on the university committee together, I think at some point I, you had been approached by starting a, an organization on campus I had or supervising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I admit I was surprised, but yeah, you you um, you've got experience in boxing. And I do. Like that. Yeah, I'm not very good, but I do <laughs> I do enjoy this very much. Um, Interesting. I don't. I wouldn't say I'm a very good martial artist, but I I belong to a group here, a club in. Green Bay, called Green Bay Jiu-Jitsu. We have a wonderful group of guys, and uh, I love it. So That doesn't yeah. really surprise me as a philosopher. I think that the importance of mindfulness and what you do with your body, that oh. would fit really well. well yeah. Glad to hear that. <laughs> it's funny. So my mom, who is a, just a very, very gentle, kind human being, has this love for boxing that she, I don't know why or how it started, but since she was a little girl, she's she's loved boxing, and she wants to talk to me about it all the time. She'd call me, uh, she, she'll call me late at night. To, so my mom once called me, woke me up to talk to me about a boxing match she had watched. And, really? But I think because of that, I've often had this sort of like interest in it and, and sort of love of boxing. But yeah, anyways, I know it's a weird, weird thing. If you knew my mom, you'd think it was very, very strange. <laughs> you'd be surprised. What aspect of your job do you enjoy the most? Uh, teaching, I love teaching students here. Uh, I, I love the classroom. I'm really a face-to-face person. Mm-hmm. I love the interaction with students. Uh, I love the excitement of the classroom. And the, I, I mean, I like debate. I like discussion, mm-hmm. disagreement. It takes students a little while to get used to that sometimes. But I just love the different kinds of, point of points of view and the, the electricity in the classroom. I mean, I just really love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let it be known, I took one of his classes as a senior. Oh. My first one. It was my capstone. All right. What yeah. was the class? What? Uh, the one in the many. Okay. Yeah. 
I need like just a quick summary of what happens in the one of the many. What? We read books and okay. talked about them okay. and wrote a couple of papers and we All debated. Right. Nice. And it was fun. Very cool. All right. That sounds good. All right. What is your favorite place to eat? Uh, here in Green Bay or in general? Either or both. Uh, oh, that's tough. I, I think I might pass on that. I okay. don't have a, something profound to say. <laughs> I'm throwing this one out. You don't like that question? It was. Yeah. Okay. Ooh, I got if you could interview one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Um, well, other than religious figures, I mean, sure. be, I think I would be interested in some religious figures like Jesus, and I teach Buddhism. I'd like to meet uh, uh, the Buddha. But uh, I mentioned that I would uh, started studying ethics and violence mm -hmm. when I was in college, and somebody I wrote about a long time ago was Niccolo Marchialli. I speak yep. Italian. I've been to Italy many times. I've been to his house. I teach mm. his books here on campus. I've been engaging this this thinker now for so many years in many different ways. I'd like to speak to him, maybe a little different Italian, <laughs> Italian, but I'd love to speak to him in Italian. I think that would be fun. Very cool. Last question here. Where would you like to go on a dream vacation? Uh, I think my wife and I would like to go to Brazil and India. Those are two oh, places nice. that we haven't been. Uh, okay. We've lived overseas together uh, in different countries. But, really? Uh, I would like to, I think those are the two countries that we would like to. Yeah. I do go to Italy a lot. That's probably one of my favorite places in the world, um, since I do speak the language. But those are the two countries I think that we'd like to go All to. Right. Um, Very good. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have, now you mentioned a couple books, and so I want to give you a chance to, to plug those here. So uh, tell people about the books you've written. Oh, well, I wrote a book on uh, Pope John Paul II in 2004, uh, and that was uh, on uh, political realism, John Paul II and political realism, uh, Defending Human Dignity, it was called. And then in um, 2008, I published a book on torture. It's all related to many of the issues that we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. It's called Spirituality and the Ethics of Torture. Okay. Uh, and it covered really a lot of the issues uh, related to not only the Bush administration, but the definition of torture and what does it mean to torture somebody and uh, history of torture and things like that. Mm. And then in, in 2013 was Spirituality in Dark Places, the Ethics of Solitary Confinement, which looks at the way in which the United States has adopted solitary confinement as a tool to, to punish people. It's a big uh, mm. tool that we use in our prison system. And so those are the books I've written. I'm working on a book on jails and Dignity, which I hope to have done pretty soon, but we'll have to get to work on it. But, uh, <laughs> Wonderful. Well, summer's coming up. Maybe that'll be a good Indeed. Time. All right. Well, thank you so very much for coming on the show. Really, really appreciate it. That was really a wonderful conversation. Fascinating. Thank you, Kate, for uh, being our producer, but also being a guest host today. You're welcome. Ryan, uh, thank you so much. Thanks for doing this podcast. It's terrific. And Kate, thanks for yeah. being here. Very much appreciated. Mm -hmm. You bet. So um, we have got one more episode this season, uh, and it is going to be um, from, we'll probably do a couple things from the summer, over the summer, but a little bit scaled back. So, but we've got an episode with student re researchers from the Midwestern Psychological Association Conference in Chicago. Uh, so we're excited about that. I'm going to talk to a bunch of different award-winning student researchers um, about their work. And uh, I've got a student who's going to be helping me out with that, Ali Schramm. 
Uh, so we're really excited about that. That'll be coming out next week. Um, and then also just remember, you can find us on Twitter at Psych and Stuff or on Facebook, Psychology and Stuff. Let us know what episodes you want us to cover or what we should do over the summer. That is all I got. Thank you very much.